Welcome again to our Troll Expeditions podcast. This time we're going to be discussing glaciers in Iceland and how they fit into the big picture. We're going to talk guiding in Skaftafet and our Icelandic glacier tourism. By the end of the podcast, we'll discuss details for our glacier hikes, specifically the three-hour and five-hour hikes, as well as the requirements for those tours and equipment that you're going to receive from us if you decide to join an excursion. Very excited to introduce to you, dear listeners, my interviewee for today, Kish, one of our beloved glacier guides, a learned geologist. He's joining us via voice over IP, so actually right now he's in southeast Iceland in a gorgeous place called Skaftafell. Welcome, Kish. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. I know it's sunny here in Reykjavik, but tell me, how's the weather in Skaftafet for you? Uh, we've had a little bit of different weather already, even though it's only 11 o'clock in the morning. We had some heavy rain this morning, but it's all cleared now and there's blue skies and a bit of sun showing through. Nice, fresh breeze. Lovely day. Amazing. Before I get into any personal questions, let's put you on a map so our listeners can start imagining you out there. So can you tell us in a few words, where exactly is Skaftafet and what's it famous for? So Skaftafet is uh, just beside the Ring Road 1 in Iceland. And it's about four, four and a half hours drive uh, east of Reykjavik. And what you're going to notice arriving in Skaftafet is lots of big rugged mountains, and stunning glaciers that flow down from these mountains, as well as the Vatnajökull ice cap. And also, uh, in comparison to the rest of the drive from Reykjavik, you'll notice a lot of old birch trees, quite stunted uh, birch trees that have on the hillsides with waterfalls flowing through them. It's quite uh, qu- quite good for the senses out here. It's a very impressive area. And uh, how long have you been living there in Skaftafet? And Skaftafet specifically, it's been just over two years around here. Kish, you're from Birmingham, right? Yes. And Birmingham is also the birthplace of J.R.R. Tolkien, correct? <laughs> That's correct. And uh, I think you had lots of exposure to J.R.R. Tolkien, his work and his life while growing up in Birmingham. It was definitely pushed upon us when we were at school. I think it's like a meeting point between Iceland and New Zealand here in Skaftafet. And taking into account your New Zealand experience with all the volcanoes and glaciers and all the landscapes in New Zealand, and then in Iceland as well, it's fair to say, like I mentioned, they're quite similar. So actually, Lord of the Ring, it was shot in New Zealand, but it should have really been shot in Iceland, in my opinion. And the reason for why I think that is that actually J.R. Tolkien's nanny that he had for years he was growing up with, she was an Icelander. She was feeding him all throughout his childhood those folk tales about trolls and dwarves and elves from Iceland, and also definitely telling him all about Icelandic landscape, about the volcanoes. So really, the Mount Doom in Lord of the Rings is one of the Icelandic volcanoes. I assume probably it's Hekla because it was always the one that is the most active and uh, erupts every couple of decades. Probably it's fair to say that she has definitely experienced uh, one or two eruptions of Hekla. So the whole idea, you know, throwing the ring into the volcano and the mortar as well with the ragged landscapes, the black sand deserts around the glaciers and the craggy peaks and all that. I think that kind of is definitely something that is reflected in J.R. Tolkien's work. So that's just something uh, of a fun factor for you. Yeah. In Iceland is, it's kind of like a fantasy. I know that prior to becoming a guide in Skaftafet, just like most of our colleagues, you had another life. So uh, I heard you've been a surveying geologist in Australian Outback. It's an interesting story. So I'm glad you're here to share it uh, with our listeners. Tell us all about it then. 
Yeah, so I was working in Western Australia, in the outback, as you say, uh, as an exploration geologist and field technician. So it would be lots of field work, working on exploration camps, which are looking for gold uh, on behalf of mining companies or hoping to be mining companies. <laughs> and so we'd basically, there's a few different projects I worked on. One of them would have been quite early on uh, in the process of looking for the gold, which is just literally boots on the ground, collecting dry riverbed samples and stream samples of where there's possibly some very fine gold left over. So this is kind of walking 15 to 20 kilometers per day for a couple of weeks, carrying lots of water, carrying all the samples, so 15 to 20 kilograms on your back for these days. And yeah, just camping in the desert around up to a thousand kilometers away from nearest civilization. So uh, yeah, it was a great place to live remotely. Yeah, and then kind of some of the more advanced stage projects I worked in were basically proving the resources in the ground, proving that there is gold in the ground with tangible evidence rather than just geologist kind of interpretation. We'd poke holes in the ground with drills over a large area and we'd just sample the ground and create a 3D model. Uh, of what's going on underground and we'd log every single meter of rock that is down there. Some of the campaigns we did would have been up to 80,000 meters of rock uh, with like a team of 10 geologists just combing through every single meter of rock and logging what's there and then creating this very detailed model which we can give to engineers to uh, basically decide whether it's a mine or not, whether it's worth being a mine. That's pretty much what I did in uh, Western Australia when I was there for a couple of years, just over a couple of years. It must have been rather difficult to hike in a desert there. Don't the temperatures out there in the, in the outback get up pretty high? Yeah, yeah, they do. A good day would be like 30, 35 degrees. When it got very hot, it could get upwards of 50 degrees Celsius. And that's a, that's a long 12, 15 hour day standing around in the, or hiking in, that, in those kind of temperatures. So how do you hike there, actually? What's the equipment that you you take? Do you actually hike naked, you know, and because uh, it's probably the most comfortable to do <laughs> in those temperatures, I'm pretty no, sure. No, no. Uh, in fact, I wore everything because we were in kind of rugged terrain. You know, there's a lot of uh, desert bushes, which are very prickly and spiky. You definitely want to wear some clothes. <laughs> so I would wear long, long sleeve everything, big outback hat as well to protect me from the sun and then having more clothes means any water you can find which whenever you do you soak everything in water and that can kind of be like a natural air conditioning <laughs> while walking but any water in your pack you want to save for drinking so is there it wouldn't be uncommon to carry five liters of water is there any water out there actually not really no you might find a small hole which is probably not good for drinking but yeah, not not really. We would uh, take all our water in by truck. We'd take our four-wheel drives in from the nearest town. We'd bring all the water, all the fuel, all the food. And that would be us for two or three weeks with no sign of top-ups. And our only contact the rest of the world is a satellite phone for emergency. Talking about Australia, we cannot somehow skip uh, that there are dangerous animals there. Everybody knows that. So did you encounter any dangerous animals on your journeys into the outback? Yeah, definitely. And I'm not one for creepy crawlies, but it was something I had to put up with. There was uh, spiders, many black widow spiders. There was uh, wolf spiders that are very quick uh, at running around things. Saw a couple of snakes, but not too many snakes. 
I think my, the scariest thing I saw was um, it's called, it's a type of monitor lizard, but it's very big, more than a meter in length. And they're called bungaras, is I believe the Aboriginal term or the local term for it. And they have this deadly bacteria on their claws. So you definitely don't want to go too close to them. And they would frequently wander across your uh, samples that you're hoping to take back to the lab and back to the city. <laughs> so sometimes we just have to wait for them to go away. I'm happy to report that there is no snakes in Iceland and uh, the only spider that you find here is is very very tiny and it doesn't really bite anyone and uh, neither we do have any mosquitoes so actually uh, we are kind of you know a minimalistic ecosystem here that's very safe and uh, just very benign in this sense the only I think weather uh, the, the only uh, danger that can come is from like very severe weather sometimes in the uh, shoulder seasons and uh, in the winter maybe uh, but about uh, apart from that uh, it's rather yes. safe yeah quite quite easy here in terms of not many animals trying to attack you here it's quite nice i think there's like literally no animals and no predators that ever going to attack you in iceland correct that i'd say that's correct yeah and uh, as i understand afterwards you moved to new zealand to become a hiking guide i'll tell you immediately uh, what's my experience with new zealand so we can compare myth with the reality so i used to live in husavik north iceland uh, for a while couple of years back and uh, some of you might know Husavik from the movie Eurovision on Netflix, which is like uh, utterly funny. I, I love this movie. It's a great comedy. If you want to check out something about Iceland, it's a movie. Uh, do not try to watch Icelandic cinema. It's uh, very depressing. It's want to make you not go to Iceland. But instead, check this one out with Will Ferrell. It's super funny. And it has uh, part of it takes place in Husavik up there. And uh, I remember I was uh, skateboarding and downhill skating from there's a great slopey street in Husavik facing the ocean with this one guy that was a local but he came back after a couple of years of living in New Zealand so my knowledge about New Zealand only comes from Lord of the Rings really so but how I understand it it's uh, an island surrounded by ocean of course and uh, plenty of volcanoes glaciers sheep you know and geothermal hot springs so for me it was like okay why did you actually come back to Iceland after spending so much time in New Zealand that seems like like a weird trade-off to come back to almost the same place but just on the other side of the world and then he said, oh, it's because there's way too many trees in New Zealand. I uh, can't see the landscape through the trees. So uh, for those of you that want to come visit Iceland uh, and uh, you want to have like unimpended view of the landscape, this is our thing. We have like very, very few trees around. So you can see all the mountains and glaciers like without having those pesky trees in your way. And uh, But uh, New Zealand, you know, it's, it's a little different though. Since you've spent some time there, maybe you can tell us uh, a little about the differences, right? Yeah, sure. The reason that I came here was pretty much, yeah, I want to see just slightly different landscape to where I was in New Zealand. Guiding there amongst the glaciers was quite awe-inspiring. You know, they, they come, they're a lot larger in terms of height over there. But over here, I, I really prefer the glaciers here. They're much more accessible and in terms of the amount of terrain you can just go to. The glaciers here, they're, they're so, so huge. It's kind of hard to describe. Uh, but when you're standing in front of them, I'm sure many of the listeners have seen photos on Instagram, the glaciers around here, and they're, they're pretty wild. I mentioned trees. So uh, how is it with trees? There are There's plenty of trees actually in New Zealand, correct? I think uh, that what I've heard from you before is that this the only place in the world where you have rainforest and the glacier next to each other, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. So if you define the kind of the glaciers where guided trips are done from most of them in New Zealand, you have what they call mid-latitude mountain glaciers, which means they're kind of in a temperate region of the world. And so they come down, or they used to come down a lot further than they do now, but they used to descend right into the rainforest. 
And even today, you'll to go and see those glaciers, you have to walk a little bit through the rainforest just to get a good view. It's uh, quite quite spectacular and obviously quite unique. But the things have changed for them and uh, their glacier tourism. And uh, I think 2016, correct, when there was like uh, this massive catastrophic event on uh, one of the glaciers where basically it cut off a bunch of ice away from the rest of the outlet and uh, now they're unable to literally just hike up to it uh, easily. So in 2012, a lot of companies went from hiking from effectively the car park down a valley onto the glacier overnight going to helicopters and flying onto higher parts of the glacier just to access it. Those glaciers there, because they're so steep, they react quite dynamically to any climate fluctuations or weather fluctuations as well. So helicopter access for New Zealand, most of New Zealand's glaciers now, particularly beginner guided trips. Uh, whereas here, we're still very lucky. We can still walk on our glaciers just from the, uh, just from the car park. Guiding, what do you like uh, about it? It's a really cool way for me to kind of share my knowledge that I've gained through geology studies and working in different parts of the world and sharing my understanding of the natural environment around us. Frequently, people come on our trips who maybe are from the city and don't normally leave kind of urban areas. And then they come here and explaining how dynamic uh, the environment is around us and how things are changing and just explaining a bit more what's around us. It's not just trees and grass and rocks. There, there is a there's a larger story, a larger thing at work. And it's kind of my passion about it, sharing the understanding of the landscape. I get you very, very well. See, the first time I arrived uh, in Skaftafet, uh, that's my personal experience, it was, I was jaw-dropped. The, the impression of beauty was just so immense and uh, it really is a completely immersive and an impressive experience to be there. And I remember I hiked up to the, like, the, there is a plateau in Skaftavet in the National Park. There's just a simple hike and you go stand on a rock that overlooks the, one of the glacier outlets. And it was a nice clear day like you're probably having today. So I could see everything in the distance. The sea was shimmering mm-hmm. out there. The glaciers were just shining in the sun, you know, and I could see all around me, every little detail, all the cracks and crevices in the glaciers and all the rocks. And literally, I just started crying right then and there. It was a life-changing experience for me, really. And after that, you know, I was never the same again. So I kind of coined this hypothesis that the beauty of Iceland, or at least the beauty of nature in a, a bigger sense, but uh, Icelandic beauty is, is like really something to, to see, is, is healing. So I think that people that come here, especially from urban areas, you know, from the stressed out environment, they come here, they go to Skaftavet and see all of this beauty. And when they're immersed in it, they just become lighter. The, the stress goes away. Everything goes away. All the worries. And in a sense, you become a better person, I think. Yeah, I think you've got it spot on there. Yeah, I mean... Okay, so how did you actually arrive in Iceland and become a guide here? What was the idea behind that? came to Iceland from... Well, I was guiding in New Zealand, and then I came here for the job to guide on the glaciers. Yeah, I initially came for kind of six months and kind of experienced what you were saying just then about the jaw-dropping beauty, and it's been a few years now. Since we've yep. arrived back to Iceland, uh, we've established uh, Icelandic glaciers are very accessible to general population. So let's talk Vatnajökull, the fa- famous ice cap of southeastern Iceland and also the biggest glacier in Europe in terms of surface area. And uh, there is something to say here because that's what I've been telling people, that uh, it is like somehow on, almost on par with the Svalbard uh, glacier, uh, but the Svalbard has a bigger volume and uh, Vatnajökull has a big, bigger surface area. But uh, you don't agree with that. There is something to be said about uh, different glaciers around here, right? Yeah, I guess it depends how you define Europe, whether it's countries or continent. There is a large glacier on an Arctic peninsula 
kind of sticks from northern Russia into the Arctic Circle. That's, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but Novaya Zemlya. And that ice cap is quite large. It's almost, it's more than double in size, actually, of Vatniuk ice cap, which is our one over here. But it's a much more inaccessible than this one here, which is right next to the ring road, effectively. The one over there in northern Russia, you, it's only really accessed by scientific uh, research ships or these uh, long luxury cruises, expedition cruises that kind of skirt by in the Arctic Circle and go see the island from afar. What about Greenland? Uh, that is also supposed to be in Europe, although more, I think it borders with Canada. So I, we could say, I mean, at least in my opinion, it's uh, rather in America than anything else. But uh, administratively and I think historically, it is part of Europe at the moment and uh, they have massive glacier over there, but it's not really, uh, it's not an ice cup, right? It's something else. It's, uh, don't you, isn't it what you call ice sheets, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's how we define different bodies of ice. We have different classifications and names for them. So what we have here in Iceland, we have only ice caps, which are these big blobs of white you'll see on Google satellite map. Whereas in Greenland, ice sheet is more than 50,000 kilometers squared, which is why it's called an ice sheet. Anything less would be an ice cap, which is what we have. I see. What was your first impression um, of Vatna, you could, of the Icelandic glacier when you when you first saw it? I know mine was uh, the impression of, of jaw-dropping beauty, as I said before. Can you relate to this in any way? Yeah, definitely. That's definitely one of the things that came to mind when I was driving into the area for the first time. The other thing was just how different all the glaciers are, how they behave. Maybe this is the geologist in me, but it just seemed like there were so many places I wanted to explore immediately. Whether they're accessible or not, I wanted to go there and there and there. The glaciers have such uh, strange formations in the crevasse fields and the ice falls. It's kind of intrigued my interest and I've remained here since I first saw it. Did you actually get to explore all of those places that you uh, looked at in the first place during uh, the last two years you've been here? Yeah, definitely. And more. I mean, there's... But the glaciers are also constantly changing, right? Because they are moving. In some cases, some areas are moving five meters per day on average uh, annually. So things change very quickly. So I can go back to the same spot a year later and things will be totally different. It'll be totally unrecognizable. So can you tell me which place are you exactly talking about that's moving five meters per day? That would be like the ice falls of Svinefeldjökull and Fatjökull. Fatjökull is where we do most of our trips in Skattefet, particularly where that those speeds are associated with how steep the mountainside is underneath where the glacier is flowing. Very dynamic environment. And uh, can you tell me how are the glaciers yeah. of Iceland formed? Glaciers in Iceland are formed much the same way as uh, other glaciers around the world, where it basically starts with lots of snowfall. So you need a kind of an elevated region that is getting snow most year round. That snow effectively builds up into a thick layer. In the case of Fatjuka, where we do most of our trips, at the top of the glacier is a, is a volcanic crater that is filled with approximately 500 meters of snow and ice. And all that snow gets pretty heavy and starts to compress down to create ice, not too dissimilar to getting a snowball, and then just keep compacting it to make ice, make an ice ball. And then the ice begins to flow and behave in different ways according to what's going on in the mountain underneath the glacier. 
I'm going to address the geologist in you right now. As far as I know, Icelandic glaciers are in a sense unique because all of them are the so-called water glaciers, correct? So there is actually a thin layer of water underneath the, the ice, in between the ice and the bedrock that, that the ice is touching on. And uh, so that makes them actually uh, rather quick if they uh, start to move. So they're sort of lubricated underneath. So they get uh, less friction uh, when they're moving. Is that correct? Uh, there is a lot of meltwater with the Icelandic glaciers. The temperatures in the summer here can get frequently above 20 degrees Celsius, even on the glacier in the lower areas. Yeah, most glaciers you'll find, uh, it's a theory that's up for debate sometimes, whether there is lots of water causing the glacier to move over the rock easier or not. Yeah, you'll frequently see lots of water rivers on the glacier flowing down moorlands, which are these basically vertical tunnels that create a huge drainage system in the glacier that usually end up in a lagoon at the bottom, if not a river that goes out to the ocean. And I want to ask a question that I think every guide in Iceland usually gets. Do glaciers disappear in the summertime? <laughs> no, no, they do not. Uh, we're very lucky that they do not. Otherwise, I don't think we'd have much work, Michael. <laughs> so in the summer and winter glaciers are always here and we're one of the few places in the world that we're lucky enough just to be able to work all year round and offer these amazing experiences so since we're able to hike on glaciers both in the winter and the summer how do seasons make the glaciers different the seasons affect effectively how much the glacier is melting so in the warmer seasons uh, which is most of the year anything above freezing you'll frequently see a lot of rivers and if after heavy rain events or during heavy rain events you'll see waterfalls appearing on the glacier and the mountains around when it's drier say drier and cold say in the winter uh, in the late winter you'll get lots of snow on the glacier which can create some very visually stunning uh, kind of natural art pieces <laughs> on the glacier with little pockets of snow dotted in amongst the uh, blue ice so yeah every season very different uh, on the glaciers nicely What's but your favorite? What's your favorite season for glacier hiking? Then, oh, it's hard to pick one because every season has positives to it. There's always, a, even in a heavy rainstorm, right on the glacier in the in the shoulder seasons, more like late summer, early winter, or spring, you get kind of a polished glacier that looks all shiny and lots of waterfalls, but it is raining. <laughs> but then in the in the hot sun, you can you know you can wear much less clothing, so it's lovely. And it's just nice to walk around when it's sunny and dry. Uh, but yeah, there's positives to also all the different seasons. Personally, for me, I like spring just before the water starts flowing. So I can explore the tunnels and all sorts of features on the glacier before they're all flooded in the summer. Let's talk cinema and celebrities. Yeah. Have you met any celebs up on the glacier around them? I've met some celebrities which I, I don't know until they say they... Uh, take a photo on my trip and put it on Instagram and then suddenly the next day I've got 400 Colombian followers <laughs> or something like this. But in I know other people have had famous celebrities. Uh, I know someone had Cristiano Ronaldo one on, a, on a trip. Uh, that would have been quite cool. But yeah, I, I've not had anyone, uh, any major celebrities that I can think of. I can think of some that I had. I mean, I'm not like specifically on yeah. the tour, but actually when I first uh -huh. arrived in Skaftafet, that was in 2013, I got a job at the hotel in Skaftafet uh -huh. on the reception desk. And my yeah. uh, my manager, my hotel manager, he said, uh, after a week of me being on the reception desk, he said, hey, listen, uh, we're going on a vacation with my girlfriend. And she was actually a reception uh, manager. They both left and he said, don't worry about the reception. Uh, you don't have to do much because the, the film crew is coming. 
just for a month. They're renting out the hotel completely. And I was, I was a little surprised. I was like, who's coming? And he's, oh, you know, just some, uh, some celebs from, from Hollywood. Oh, interesting. I said, a couple of days later, Matt Damon and Anne Hathaway and Christopher Nolan walks in to the hotel and they just, you know, rented the whole place out for a month. <laughs> so, uh, I got to, uh, wow. drink uh, beer with Anne Hathaway, like a couple of evenings, you know, and I did have to serve coffee because I was on night shifts, had to serve coffee early morning, wee hours, you know, five o'clock in the morning, coffee to Christopher Nolan every day. Yeah. As uh, I remember that. So they were actually <laughs> shooting a movie on Svinafetsjukut, uh, which is literally just behind the hotel. I think it's about half an hour uh, walking in a, with a slow pace to get to the glacier yeah. there. Door and to door. Yeah, that's door to door. And they were just shooting there. And uh, do you know what movie were they shooting? You can guess. Uh, Interstellar. It was Interstellar, exactly. I think uh, Christopher Nolan really likes yeah. the area. I don't, I'm not completely sure if he has uh, returned. I mean, he's been here already a couple of times. And if you remember Batman Begins, so that was his previous movie. And uh, that was yeah, also yeah. shot in, uh, on Svinafetsjukut. Or at least it was shot like on the side yeah. of Svinafetsjukut. There's like, uh, there's a, the, the rock of uh, Havrafjat. And that was uh, supposed to be yeah. Himalayas. And of course, Svinafetsjukut was supposed to be the Himalaya glacier. And the fight between the Batman and Liam Neeson he was Ra's al Ghul. That was happening on like a frozen lake. So that was actually the part of the lagoon of Svinafajuku that was frozen over. It was quite interesting. And I think actually month before... Yeah, that area has changed so much now. It has. <laughs> it's very dynamic there. Yeah. yeah, about a month before that, there was a bunch of carpenters and they were going every day to Svino and building a space pod there. You know, like one of those drop pods where the, the like a habitat building out of wood and spray painting it to look oh. like it's steel. So it was already when they arrived and the yeah. rest of the crew arrived. It was quite interesting uh, to find out that. I think they even like blew it up at some point uh, of uh, shooting of the movie. Now, I personally uh, <laughs> have never seen the movie, although somehow I had a hand in uh, making it. I mean, I don't know what would Christopher Nolan do without my coffee, of course, but I know for he sure it. <laughs> he would probably not make it. Thanks to me, you know, and my coffee. He got to make the movie. Have you seen the movie, actually? I think I have a while ago. Right. Yeah. So there's uh, the, the, that was the, the ice long. planet <laughs> that was shot on a glacier. In, on yeah, Spino. that's it. That was the ice planet. And I'm not sure if you remember, they were doing those low gravity jumps because it was a low gravity planet. And then I saw how it's being yeah. done in Hollywood. It's all smoke and mirrors. We all know that. But it was not a CGI. Actually, what, uh, what they did, uh, Matt Damon had this astronaut suit. And on his belt, there were two, it, it was basically, his belt was a harness. And on both sides of the of the harness, there were loops. And he got himself uh, like two bungee ropes attached to both sides of his belt. And then there was a helicopter they have rented out that was just parked in front of the hotel for the whole month. And uh, when they were shooting those low gravity jumps, the helicopter was, was flying above him, you know, and he was jumping on those bungee ropes up and down. That's amazing. That sounds fun, <laughs> doesn't it? I would love to do it one day on a glacier. Oh, we should offer that trip. Yeah. We should absolutely uh, develop a trip like that. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. <laughs> so can you uh, recall any other movies or, or TV shot around Skaftafet? Around Skaftafet? So let's see. Game of Thrones. That was filmed on that same glacier in Svinafeldzuka. Have you ever watched Game of Thrones? I have watched all of it, yeah. Yeah, north of the wall, the wildings. That's kind of the area that enclosing uh, Jon Snow uh, in that area. So that's, yeah, that's pretty famous. Uh, for being that where the wildings live. Actually, I've just remembered, I think Will Smith was filming something last year, last summer, 
on a, on a glacier slightly further down the road uh, from Skaftafet. But yeah, I'm not sure what he was doing. And then on a on a different ice cap, you may have seen the TV show Kapla. It has come out on Netflix. That was filmed. Uh, I bumped into them filming a few times. Yeah, nothing else really that comes to mind. What comes to my mind is James Bond movie. I don't remember which one, but it was like 1989. And that was also shot on Svinavesjogut. It was also in Skaftavet and behind the hotel. It was a long time ago. That was shot in the winter okay. when the glacier was full of snow. And if you like take a look at it on YouTube, I think it's going to blow your mind because there are skiers there. So James Bond is, uh, turns out to be you know able to do like literally everything, all the extreme sports possible in the world. So he's also an expert skier. And yeah. uh, you will find out that they're like literally jumping on ski into crevices from like five meters. Uh, I'm, I, I saw it. I was like, what the hell is going on here? So they shot it there. <laughs> but I think the times back then were a little different. The stuntmen, you know, it's a pretty dangerous job. But think of that, yeah. you know, jumping into a crevice on ski. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty rad. And uh, at the same time, somehow uh, I find it uh, extremely dangerous. <laughs> I would never do that myself. But, but they've I done can't that. imagine that would go on these days <laughs> no, neither am i i think no, the, the losses would just uh, devour the, the budget but yeah that did happen <laughs> yeah. and then again uh, another james bond movie with pierce brosnan i think this was the last one with him i also don't tomorrow never dies was it uh, i think that was shot on a glacier die, lagoon. Was it tw- die another day die another day exactly it was die another day that was on a glacier yeah, lagoon, on, uh, yeah, lagoon. Glacier lagoon. So that's not too far away. It's yeah, like 45 minutes drive from Skaftafet. And there's a massive, massive lake yep. connected to the ocean. And the biggest sort of outlet in Iceland is just melting and uh, calving into that lake. It's uh, just pretty stunning area and very scenic. Have you ever heard how they shot the car? Yeah, I've seen it lagoon? in the movie. But you know that it never freezes. Uh, I'm sure you, uh, you you noticed the lagoon never freezes no, in the winter time yeah. <laughs> because it's so much fresh water, yeah. right? But it is actually connected to the ocean through a channel. So there is some uh, uh, there is some like seawater entering. There's an undercurrent, so it never lets the lagoon freeze over during the winter time. But they found a way to do it to freeze the whole lagoon over. Did you know that? I'm gonna I'm gonna just uh, extrapolate Go on. on that so so we can have a story for your tour as well at some point. So what they did is they actually put a dam under the bridge for the time being. And so the majority of the water at some point, after like a couple of weeks, became fresh water, the meltwater from the glacier, and it started freezing. And I think they had like a perfect timing because I think they were like either running out of time or it was just freezing and then there was a warm spell coming up that they knew of. So they were like, okay, there's a thin layer of ice here on the lagoon. So we might be able to shoot it, but it could be also a little dangerous because it is a thin layer of ice. Like, we don't know what's going to happen. It might break under the cars as they're driving. They took the risk, actually, and uh, it's insane what they did. So, of course, with the car chase, when you're shooting it, you have to be driving. And as you're driving, you know, you might be actually fast enough to leave the ice that's breaking. If you stay in one place, it could break because it's just wait over time. But if you drive over it, you might be able to just get out of it, you know, without uh, breaking it underneath you. So this is exactly what they did, you know. But they were, I think, as I remember the interview with the director, he said they definitely had a hard stop a couple of times uh, while shooting that scene, just because the ice, they could hear it cracking yeah. underneath. Uh, but they did it anyways. And uh, and there we go. You know, we have one of the most memorable car chase scenes in the history of the cinema, I think, that was shot in Iceland in the Glacier Lagoon, just using uh, the Hollywood creativity and uh, definitely like a bit sense of risk there and taking the risk and, and uh, yeah, making yeah. it happen. Pretty wild. So we're going to get over the last section of our interview. 
So why would you say is glacier hiking in Skaftafell great? And why do you think everyone should do it? Definitely. Glacier hiking in Skaftafell is great. <laughs> Reason why, though, is uh, just the number of glaciers you'll see, just even on the drive to the glacier. Quite stunning. But you get a good kind of, you'll get a good feeling, good understanding, I should say, in the area of how glaciers form and how they behave very quickly. You know, in a day or so, you'll go from not knowing how that huge mass of ice got there to kind of understanding how the area is working dynamically, how the volcano is formed, how the glaciers cut through the mountain. And uh, it's a really good way to uh, learn the geography and geology of the area. It's like going back to school, but way more fun. Way more fun because you do it in the field this time, right? So you can actually see everything in action. Exactly. And there's no homework. <laughs> there is no homework. It's just fun. Just fun. Yeah. It's, Learning in the field, the best thing you can do. It's just fun. And we mentioned the stunning beauty. And I think that's one of the biggest selling points of the area as well. I want to ask you, how does a regular three-hour glacier hike go? Take us through step by step. Okay. So what you would do is arrive just before your trip departure. Uh, all the instructions usually in your booking. Before we depart our office for the trip, we will explain what kind of gear you need, you know, what footwear. We can provide footwear as well, correct footwear for you. We'll get you geared up with all the glacier equipment. We'll fit you, customize the footwear to your boot as well, the crampons, which are these spikes that help us walk on the ice. We will get, you know, the right size ice axes. We'll give you a harness for safety and helmet as well. We will then depart from the office. We'll head to the Glacier Car Park. And we kind of have a really nice warm-up walk, which is extremely scenic through like moss meadows with lots of alpine flowers. And we walk past the Glacier Lake. And as we approach the glacier, we start to put our gear on. We'll explain how to use all this equipment that we've given you and how to safely behave on the glacier. And the guide will explain all of this. And then we'll go for a little hike on the ice. Your guide will most likely show you different features of the glacier and explain how glacier works. There's a few little stories and myths around the area locally. Yeah, we do that hike. And then, yeah, any questions you have, you can ask the guide. Generally quite knowledgeable of the area. And that's pretty much a three-hour hike. Yeah, you get to see all these features, which is the highlight, particularly for my trips. I really like to show as much as I can in those three hours. Uh, and then we hike back. And so it's, you can do quite a bit in a three-hour hike. What about five-hour hikes? We also offer those. What's the difference between them? The difference is you'll spend more time on the glacier, specifically on the ice. Like the three-hour glacier hike is like a nice little introductory hike, a bit of a taster of what the five-hour is, which is a, you know, a, a larger trip. You'll see more features of the glacier. You'll manage to go higher in elevation and probably poke different areas of the glacier that you wouldn't necessarily with a three-hour hike. Yeah, you'll see uh, more things and you know, there'll be a chance for snack breaks and maybe a lunch if you bring your packed lunch. Obviously, we can, uh, in the summer when there's lots of water flowing, we can, you know, fill up our water bottles, have a little taste of glacier water, which is always nice because it means we don't have to carry as much in our backpack. The, the rest of it is all the same. We provide all the gear. The guide will explain about the safety. Kind of uh, just a bit, bit longer. You'll see more things uh, I think than the three hour. Five-hour hike uh, that also takes yeah. you up almost to the icefall, correct? To the foot of the icefall on Fatjukut. We don't go in the icefall. Icefalls, yeah, they're generally quite treacherous. Uh, we stay nice and safe below it where we can watch it safely. There's always new features forming around there because that is the quicker moving part of the glacier. So it's a nice area to explore and we have the time on the five-hour hike to do that little bit of exploring just below the icefall. So tell me, is it safe to hike up a glacier with us? 
Oh, most definitely. Uh, we do it day in, day out. It's very safe. We we take safe routes. We're all trained. We will explain all the hazards, and we are also looking out for other hazards as well. So you can just relax. You just follow the guide. We will choose the route. We will tell you how to walk. So it's all very safe and a very managed environment. So tell us about the safety training of our guides that they go through to arrive at a point where they're capable of taking a group up on ice. So typically to go on the ice, you will be trained in crevasse rescue, which we never have to do, but we practice. A crevasse is basically a crack in the glacier, and we train pulling each other out of these cracks. But we do more preventative work. We never want to end up in these cracks, right? So we do a lot of training in our route selection and how to get around the glacier. We have first aid training as well. Some of us have more advanced first aid training for like wilderness environments. We all have training and we're all capable enough uh, to take safe trips on the glacier. Sounds amazing. And uh, you mentioned a couple of pieces of equipment that we provide for our customers. Can you extrapolate a little bit on what those pieces of equipment yes. are? The main things would be a helmet, like adjustable helmets. So they fit everybody. Then we have harnesses as well. Harnesses are for safety for the hiking they're like a seat belt in your car you wear it but we never have to use them we have an ice axe as well which we use for kind of uh, like a walking stick a bit of stability on the ice and then also crampons which are these uh, spikes we attach them to your boots and they basically help you grip on the glacier and combine with the ice axe they give you kind of three points of contact which means you're usually very stable let's get to The last question, what are the general requirements for our clients to be able to join a tour? Can literally anyone go for a glacier hike? Yes, pretty much. I mean, if you can walk comfortably for three hours or for five hours for the longer trip, then you can go on a glacier hike. Even if you're scared of heights, it's not not an issue most of the time. If you have any questions, your guide can always explain, you know, in before we leave for the trip as well. Please email Troll Expeditions and if you have any questions before your trip, we're always happy to answer. As long as you can walk for three to five hours, you are qualified to go on a trip. Great. That sounds fantastic. So I think we're ready to wrap it up. But before we do that, tell us about your plans for the near future. For the immediate near future, so I'm a training officer in Skaftafet. So I'm you know, always looking to train guides and we always want to improve our our skills you know we're always learning for me as well i'm i'm always practicing new skills myself kind of exploring scaffold and uh, there's many little missions i'd like to do and particularly in the summer when we can get out a bit more bit of training bit of enjoyment of the hills and the mountains around us and that's my summer plan are you excited for the next day working up on the glacier i am in fact i have a tour this afternoon and i can't wait because it's nice and sunny fantastic <laughs> I'm going to finish the interview right here. Thank you, Kish, very much for joining us. And if you guys want to book a tour with us, you have to go to troll.is. That's T-R-O-L-L dot I-S. And we have a variety of glacier hiking tours, the five-hour hike, a three-hour hike. And later in the season, we're also going to have an Ice Cave Plus glacier hike, as well as ice climbing trips that you can book all year round as well. So you guys keep an eye out for that. And I strongly recommend going to Skaftafet to check out the beauty and the impressive spectacle of nature that happens out there in the southeast of Iceland. Thank you very much again and uh, goodbye. 
Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Michael, and great being talking about Scaftafet. Look forward to having any of our listeners come visit us, and yeah, have a great day. Thank you. I'll see you on the glacier. Bye-bye. See you. Bye-bye.